0: your grace and your mercy and your goodness to us your word father your teachings the examples you've given us and we thank you for the example of paul and lord we just ask now that you would open our hearts to your spirit to your word father speak to us we need you to speak to us tonight and we ask that you would through your word and we lift this time to you in jesus name amen all righty so philippians 1 And our topic for Philippians 1, our homework was joy in adversity. And I'm going to give you just really quick some background on Philippians. Uh, You know, Karen gave us that whole background on on all of them, but I'm going to just reiterate some important points about Philippians. Uh, It's known as the epistle of joy. And while Galatians is a letter of correction, Ephesians is a letter of instruction, and Colossians is a letter of encouragement in Christ, Philippians is an ode to joy. Today, people are consumed with the pursuit of happiness. But in in spite of the the many seminars and motivational speakers and self-help books, all claiming to have the key to happiness, people are still unhappy. And why is that? That's because when people are unable to control their circumstances, they find themselves instead controlled by their circumstances. The circumstances of both Paul and the Philippian church were not those that would be expected to produce joy as we would understand it in human understanding or in human terms. Paul wrote this letter, well, in his fourth year of Roman custody, waiting for his final appeal which would determine if he would be set free or executed. And if you think about it, there was little in Paul's life from the point of his conversion on that road to Damascus that would have been expected to produce joy. And if you went through the book of Acts with us, we saw how Paul faced fierce and unrelenting opposition from both the Gentiles and his unbelieving fellow Jews. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that uh, he gives a recap of what has happened in his life, and he says he had stripes, he was beaten with rods, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked three times, he spent a night and a day on the sea. Uh, In his journeys, there were perils of waters, perils of robbers, perils of his own countrymen, Gentiles, the city, perils of the wilderness, uh perils of false brethren, in weariness and toil. He had sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst, in fastings, in cold and nakedness. And I really don't think any one of us has experienced all of this as Paul experienced it all. While Paul was in custody in Jerusalem, the Jews again formed a plot against his life and prompting the commander, the Roman commander, to send him under heavy guard to the governor of Caesarea. After this case dragged on for two years without any resolution, Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. And after an eventful trip, which included being shipwrecked in a violent storm, Paul finally arrived in Rome. And so now this is where Paul is. He's writing this letter while in Roman custody. He's under house arrest. He's awaiting Emperor Nero's final decision in his case. And yet, the theme of this letter is joy. The Greek word for joy comes from the word rejoice. Joy and rejoice are interwoven by Paul in this letter. In fact, joy or rejoice is used more than a dozen times over the four chapters. Rejoice means to feel joy or great delight, and it's actually used to describe a little lamb skipping around. It describes a physical change in our countenance, and this visible, physical expression of joy cannot be faked, and it radiates, and it affects those around us that have it. True joy, biblical joy, divine joy, is something that we can't possess by our own human strength. Joy is produced in us as we allow the Lord to strengthen us by his grace in Christ, 2 Timothy 2.1 tells us to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 12.9 and 10, Paul wrote, And he, speaking of Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Psalm 28, 7 says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy. There's that little lamb picture. And I will give thanks to him in song. So this divine joy, That Paul is speaking of is voluntary. It involves a choice of our will to allow the Lord to strengthen us with His joy because we trust that His grace is sufficient, especially when we're weak, when we're distressed, when we're sorrowful. Paul had learned the secret to true contentment and biblical divine joy in spite of the efforts of his opponents. In this letter to the Philippians, he shared this secret with this church. And so what was Paul's secret to this biblical divine joy? It was having a heart knowledge that no matter what the circumstances, God is still on the throne and he is in control of this entire universe. Biblical divine joy rests in a settled conviction that God sovereignly controls the events of life for the believer's good and for God's glory. And this joy stems from the deep-down sense of well-being that abides in the heart of the person who knows they are in a right relationship with the Lord. This joy is available to all who obey the Lord. And in fact, we're commanded as believers to rejoice. Philippians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, there are scriptures throughout there commanding us to rejoice. So as we go through the book of Philippians, Paul will share with us how to live above our present circumstances, how to rise above adversity, and how not just to survive, but to thrive in the joy of the Lord. And tonight, we're just going to look at a few important principles in chapter 1. We're going to look at Paul's actions in his circumstances, verses 1 through 11, Paul's attitude in his circumstances, verses 12 through 26, and Paul's advice in his circumstances, verses 27 through 30. So let's look at his actions And as you did your homework and as you read through this chapter, you'll see that Paul was a man of action. He was a man of service to God. He was a man of gratitude, confidence, love, and prayer. Let's look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as i said paul's under house arrest and timothy is with him his salutation is grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ now paul personally experienced god's grace which is sufficient and his peace that passes all understanding philippians 4:7 and colossians 3:15 and paul refers to himself as timothy to himself and timothy as bondservants of jesus christ in other words He and Timothy were subservient slaves of Jesus Christ, and he regarded this as his highest honor. Paul not only was absolutely sold out to do the will of Jesus Christ, but he followed the example of Jesus by serving others. Mark 10.45 tells us that Jesus uh, didn't come to serve, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. When we give Jesus Christ his rightful place as Lord in our lives, his lordship over us will be expressed in the way that we serve others. And one of the best ways that we can demonstrate our love for God is by demonstrating God's love for others. A heart will find joy when it takes its eyes off of self and its circumstances and serves others by following the example of Jesus Christ. After Paul's greeting in uh, verses 1 and 2 here, he burst into words of gratitude for the Philippians. Look at verses 3 to 5. Paul said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from this day until now. The word fellowship means something in common, shared by all, a joint participation and a common interest or activity, and it means communion. Paul looked back and remembered all that he and the Philippians had been through together. They had partnered or fellowshipped with Paul in the common goal of spreading the gospel from the first day when Lydia constrained him to come into her house until that time. They gave him not only their friendship, but their financial support. They were generous towards Paul, both when he was with them and when he was apart from them. As Paul looked back and remembered all they had done for him, he was grateful and he found joy in remembering them before the throne of God in prayer. But he was also grateful to God because he knew that it was God who had worked such kindness through the Philippians. And this brought joy to Paul. Next in verse 6, we see that Paul was a man of confidence because his confidence was in God's ability to complete the work he'd begun back in Philippi. Verse 6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is not only thankful for the past, but Paul looks to the future, and he encourages the church with a promise, and that the good work is God's, and that he began it when he gave, or when we, they gave their lives to him, and he will complete it as they walk closely with him. Numbers twenty-three nineteen says, God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, or will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? The Lord's past is the guarantee for his future. What he begins, he finishes. Paul had joy because he was confident that God would continue working in and through the Philippians because God had already begun a good work in them. Paul was also a man who loved with God's love in verses 7 through 8. Paul expresses his love for the Philippians. He says in verse 7, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you, with all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul was encouraging and sharing his gratitude and praying for this church all from prison. You realize that? You would think that Philippi had a bad memory for Paul. He wasn't originally planning on going there. And then when he got there, he was beaten and put into prison. You would think instead that he would have written something like, when I think about my time with you in Philippi, I get depressed, or I start shaking in my boots. Instead, he thanks God for them. He's encouraging them, and he's lavishing the love of God upon them. And he is filled with gratitude and joy for this church. And Paul's love for them was real. It was not false. It was not flattery. He wasn't trying to impress them. His love for them was so genuine that he makes God his witness in verse 8. And his love for them was intense. In verse 8, he says, How greatly I long for you. It means I yearn for you with a longing love. Paul's love for them was the love of Christ. He says this at the end of verse 8. For God is my witness. How greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. The love of Jesus was in Paul's heart. So much so that it had become central to Paul's character. Paul's heart was so united with the heart of Jesus, that all that was natural and of self in Paul had changed into the love of God, into the affection of Jesus Christ. Maybe this is a bit of a glimpse of what Paul meant when he said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, Galatians 2.20. One commentator said this about Paul, Christ, who was the life of his life, is the heart of his love. For Paul, serving the Lord was his life. He was focused on doing God's work, and his heart was for the furtherance of the gospel. He was thankful that the gospel was being preached, churches were being birthed, and people were getting saved. And this meant far more to him than the trials he went through, and this is why he could rejoice. This was the heart of Paul towards Jesus and toward his fellow believers in Philippi, and he wanted them to know that he genuinely loved them. Look at verses 9 through 11. We read Paul's prayer for the Philippians. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Because Paul was a man of service and of gratitude and confidence and love, he was able to lift others in prayer, even though he was the one in prison awaiting possible death. One of the most intimate things we can do in our church fellowship or here at the women's fellowship, we all have, you guys have prayer partners in your your groups, we can pray for each other. That's one of the most intimate things we can do. Prayer is powerful, and it's a tool for strengthening the church and our own spiritual lives. It takes our eyes off the negative circumstances, and it puts hope back on the Lord. It puts our trust back on the Lord. In verse 9, he picks up what he began in verse 4 regarding his prayers for them. The first part of Paul's prayer is twofold. The first is that love would abound more and more, and the second is that it would grow in knowledge and all discernment. Paul sees love as the growing point of the Christian life, and he's referring to God's love, God's agape love, that divine virtue that comes into our hearts when we're born again, Romans 5.5 five says, in Matthew 11, 29, Jesus said, Learn of me. When we study the word of God, we learn of Jesus, and we learn of how much he loves us. And the more we know him, the more we will know his love for us. And the more we know his love for us, the more response we will have towards that love in our loving him. 1 John 4:19 says we love him because he first loved us. And as a result, the more of the love of God, will outflow from our lives to others. Paul goes on to qualify this love when he says, in knowledge and discernment. This love Paul is speaking of is not a blind love or the ignorant so-called love of the 60s. God's love is, an, is accompanied with knowledge and all discernment. Paul did not want them to have a love that was solely based on emotion but rather a love that was based on the truth and the knowledge of God's word. The word discernment means to be able to have perception and insight to make the best judgment or choice. It involves moral, ethical, and spiritual discernment. I like the way J.B. Phillips renders this first part of his prayer. He says, my prayer for you is that you may have still more love, a love that is full of knowledge, and every wise insight. Ladies, we need this love. We need knowledge and discernment for all the situations and circumstances of life. And as we gain the knowledge of God's word and Christ's love, God's love in us will abound more and more with all discernment. Paul continues his prayer for them by defining the purpose why he prays for this kind of love for them. Look at verse 10 that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. In other words, so that they would be able to examine or approve what is best and then choose wisely. Sincere speaks of an inner righteousness. It means unmixed or genuine. And without offense carries the meaning of not leaning to sin. It has the idea of not falling into sinful conduct and not causing others to fall into sinful conduct and all this speaks of a maturity in our walk with the lord that can distinguish between the better or best choice and will honor the lord paul says at the end of verse 10 until the day of christ paul's prayer was that these things would become increasingly evident in their lives until jesus returned and verse 11 paul prays for their benefit as believers He says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This refers to possessing righteousness through faith in Christ. It is only by Christ's righteousness that we are able to stand before God. The book of Romans tells us that. The evidence of a right relationship with God is a conduct that is pleasing to God, which results in a life that is producing fruits of righteousness. When we bear the fruit of Christ-likeness, it will bring glory and praise to God. And this was an awesome prayer Paul had for the Philippians. It, you know, It's one we should be praying for ourselves, that we would embody this prayer, but it's also a great example to pray for our husbands, our children, our grandchildren, our brethren in the church, people that we love. It, it was such an, it's a, such an awesome example of a prayer. Paul amazes me with his actions while in prison. His actions, especially under the circumstances, are evidence that he is a servant of Jesus Christ, that his gratitude for what the Philippians and the Lord, he had gratitude for what the Philippians and the Lord had done for him. His confidence was in whom he put his faith. The love of God was in his heart and that he was a man of prayer. Paul's actions are what enabled him to have joy or rejoice, even under his circumstances. Let's look at his attitude in his circumstances, verses 12 through 26. Verse 12 says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul recaps the blessings that have resulted from his imprisonment. Notice that in the second part of verse 12, he says that all that had happened to him turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The word furtherance here means progress or advancement, the spread or promotion of. It has the meaning of an army moving forward in spite of obstacles, dangers, and distractions. As believers, nothing ever just happens to us. They either come directly from the hand of God or by some other source, but by his permissive will. Many times we don't understand why God has allowed or not allowed certain things. And sometimes, if we're honest, we may even think God has made a mistake or has forgotten us. But Paul is assuring them that with all that has happened to him, God has been using it for the furtherance of the gospel. When we are in circumstances we would not have chosen, we must ask the Lord to show us his hand in the matter. And when we meet with obstacles, we must keep advancing forward and commit our circumstances to the Lord for the advancement of the gospel, as Paul did. Verse 13 says, So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. The chains binding Paul gave him the freedom to have contact with the lost. According to Acts 28, Paul was under house arrest, as I said earlier, but he was also allowed visitors, and he was free to preach the gospel to all who came to him. He was also chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. The shift changed every six hours, which meant that Paul could have had conversations and witness to at least four soldiers a day over the period of two years. And on top of this, each soldier guarding him heard everything that he said during his hours of duty. He would hear the conversations Paul had. He would hear the prayers without ceasing. They would have to listen as he dictated the epistles. And as a result, some of these guards put their faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel went through the barracks of the Roman soldiers. Sometimes the Lord allows chains on his people in order to advance the gospel in a way that could not happen any other way. Like Paul, we need to look at our circumstances as God-given opportunities and not adversities. When we do this, then we'll be able to rejoice at what God is doing instead of becoming discouraged with our circumstances. Verse 14 says, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's chains not only gave him contact with the lost, but they also gave him uh, courage to the brethren. Discouragement has a way of spreading. But you know what? so does encouragement. Because of Paul's faith, his commitment to further the gospel, and his joyful attitude, the believers in Rome became more courageous and witnessed boldly for Christ. Verses 13 and 14 uh, clearly tells us that the impression Paul made while in his chains was far-reaching. Paul's attitude in his chains were contagious to the saved and the unsaved. And... Verses 15 through 18, we see uh, Paul's goal. Whether he was in prison or free, his goal was that Jesus Christ is preach. Paul considers the motives of others for preaching. In verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed. For the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. There were those who were jealous of Paul. They were jealous of the ministry God had given him and what God was doing through him, and they thought to take advantage of Paul being in chains. Their motive was contention and rivalry, they wanted to have their own followers. And the attitude of Paul here is that he didn't focus on distractions. Remember, the enemy of our souls will try to destroy us. And if he cannot do that, he will try to discourage us. And if he can't do that, he will try to distract us. Paul's faith in God's sovereignty allowed him to rejoice, even with wrong motives of others, rejoice that Christ was still being preached. As long as the gospel was being preached, Paul didn't allow his circumstances to steal his joy, and he didn't allow himself to get distracted. In verses 19 through 26, we see Paul's perspective. For I know, verse 19 says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, Paul knew he had a settled conviction and a certainty that his present trials would turn out for his deliverance or for his good because he knew that Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And he knew that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us, Romans 8:18. 8, Paul also knew the Philippians were interceding for him, and this encouraged him greatly. Ladies, we need each other's prayers. Take advantage, again, of the weekly prayer partners we have here. Take advantage of the Tuesdays. When we have prayer on Tuesdays, it's not just to fill up time. It, it, it's vital for our our uh, endurance in what we go through in life. And on Thursdays, when we have the common prayer on Thursdays, the first Thursday of each month, Paul also knew that the Lord would provide what he needed to continue. Verse 20 Paul says according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed but with all boldness as always so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death verse 21 for me to live for me to live is Christ and to die is gain but if i live in the flesh this will mean fruit from my labor yet what i shall choose i cannot tell for i am hard pressed between the two having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Paul is saying that his attention is fixed upon one objective, one goal, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that he could be either released from prison or executed. If executed, Christ would be glorified in his martyrdom. If released, he could continue serving the Lord as his bondservant and preaching the gospel. Either way... To Paul, there was no difference between life and death as long as that life or death magnified and glorified and exalted his Lord. Paul had a heavenly perspective. His perspective is found in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knew that this life was about knowing, trusting, and serving God. But he also knew that life in heaven would be far better because he would be with Christ. Equally, he wanted to stay here so that he could continue to minister and proclaim the gospel, and he was ready to go home and see Jesus face to face. Paul's concern was not what would happen to him or how or when he would die, but what testimony would he leave for the Lord. That was his concern. 1 Corinthians 9.15, Paul said that he would rather die than give the impression that he was serving the Lord for money, and that's why he supported himself while preaching in Corinth. To Paul, anything that marred his testimony for Christ was worse than dying. And you know what, ladies? There are some things worse than dying, and dishonoring Jesus Christ is one of them. As God's people, our lifestyle should reflect that we believe marring our witness for the gospel, and Christ is worse than dying. Verses 24 to 26. Paul says, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And be confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for your progress and joy of faith. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Paul had come to the conclusion that the Philippians still needed him. This was just like Paul. He lived a crucified life was dead to self and he set aside his desires in order that he might serve others and so he tells them that he will remain with them for a while more although Paul really didn't have a choice in the matter he tells us this tells us that he believed that he believed that the servants of the Lord will be immortal until our work is done like Xavier says we're all gonna die right on time we don't have a say as to when or how will we be called home with the Lord? But we can be sure that He won't call us until our work for His kingdom is done. And Paul was, Paul knew he still had more work to do with the Philippians. Yeah, those of you that, that were here in 2001, and those of you that weren't, Xavier was in a horrible motorcycle accident in 2001. Broke his neck, C2 fracture. He should have been, he should be dead. Xavier should not have lived, but his work was not yet done, and the Lord. Brought him back to us. Uh, we lost Denise Coburn last week. Her work was done. She slipped away. Only the Lord knows. We we have no control. But God is sovereign over that, and we have to remember that. So Paul was confident that he would be released, and he would continue to minister to the Philippians. And actually, Paul was exonerated at this time. He was released. He was arrested a few years later. And it was that imprisonment in which he wrote 2 Timothy, and at that point he knew his death was imminent. And tradition has it that Paul was beheaded as a result of Nero's persecution on the church. In verse 25, we see again the golden thread that is interwoven throughout this entire epistle, joy. The progress or increasing of their faith is what would result in their joy of faith, Paul says. Paul's attitude in his circumstances was that he rejoiced because all that happened to him resulted in the advancement or the furthering of the gospel. He rejoiced because he was able to witness to the palace guards. He rejoiced because many believers became confident and bold to speak the word. He rejoiced even when others preached out of Contention or rivalry because Christ was still being proclaimed. And he rejoiced because his perspective was to live is Christ, to die is gain. And let's look at Paul's advice in his circumstances, verses 27 through 30. Starting in verse 27, Paul gives advice to the Philippians. He says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent Paul wants the Philippians to know the truth that he was learning in prison so that when they went through difficult times, they too could be victorious and have joy. He tells them in verse 27 to make sure that their conduct is worthy of the gospel of Christ. I like J.B. Phillips, the way he renders this, but whatever happens, make sure that your everyday life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Of Christ, This is great advice for us. The conduct of a believer should weigh as much as the gospel they profess to believe. Our words carry weight when our manner of life, our practices, our conduct befits that character of Christ. Someone put it this way. It's like being a bad actor in a good pantomime. A person whose conduct is not worthy of the gospel is like a bad actor. He says his lines, but no one's getting it. No one's feeling it. It's just words. But a good pantomime doesn't have to say a word. Their actions alone speak loud and clear. I like that picture. Next, in the second part of verse 27, Paul tells them to stand fast and firm in unity. Standing fast or firm conveys the meaning Uh, to stand firm in faith and in duty, to be constant, to persevere, and to continue in a state. It has the idea of the determination of a soldier who stands his ground, not budging an inch from his post. Paul is saying, like good soldiers of Jesus Christ, they were to stand firm as the united body of Christ. The Holy Spirit unites us as Christians, into one body, 1 Corinthians and Ephesians 4 tells us. If we can stand firm in the spirit, then we can overcome those petty differences amongst us, which the enemy wants to use to divide us. And in unity, we can advance toward our common goal, which is proclaiming the gospel. In the last part of verse 27, Paul says, striving together, and that has the meaning of a struggle requiring great determination to win, to contend or wrestle together as in an athletic contest in which a group of athletes cooperate with one another as a team competing against another team, working in perfect coordination against a common opponent. Paul pictures the church as a team of athletes striving together to reach their God-given goal. He exhorts the church to be friends and not foes, co-laborers, and not competitors. As a church, we have a common goal, and we have a common adversary. And so Paul pleads for a united church to resist the adversary and advance the gospel of Christ. As believers, as sisters in Christ, we are to stand firm and strive together, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, heart to heart, spirit to spirit, and in unity. Paul, in verse 28, advises them to be bold before their adversaries. First part of 28, he says uh, to not be terrified. Paul calls the church to courage in the face of danger, especially persecution of the church. And there was persecution of the church then, and it's still happening today. The word terrified comes from a word used to describe a frightened horse on the battlefield about to stampede away. Paul is saying that the church is not to be startled, frightened, or terrified like an uncontrollable stampede of horses. Terrified also has the meaning to not let oneself be intimidated. Paul is saying to not be fearful or terrified as a result of being intimidated by our adversary. As we conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel and we stand united with the brethren, striving to advance the gospel, we will be opposed, but God wants fearless, courageous fighters who will not be startled or intimidated by anything the enemy of our souls throws our way. So let's choose not to focus on the adversary, but on the Almighty. Faith is the best antidote for fear. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen tells us. When we take our focus off the Lord and off his word, we are in danger of falling prey to fear. Who we focus on will determine our perspective and our response. In the second part of verse 28, Paul encourages the church with two very important truths. He's, he gives them the fate of the believers contrasted with the fate of their adversaries. Those that die without faith in the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ will experience the destruction which is accompanied By everlasting torment and weeping of gnashing of teeth, as in Matthew chapter 13. The worst our adversary can do to us, which is death, is in fact the best because we will be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8 tells us. So we have nothing to fear, and Paul said it best in verse 21 of this chapter, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in verses 29 through 30, we have Paul's concluding remarks. He says, It's been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but to also suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me. The word granted has a meaning of a benefit or favor or grace or gracious and gift. Paul is saying that suffering for Christ is actually a gracious gift when we suffer hostility. Animosity, rejection, or persecution for our faith, it's a gift because it, it assures us of our salvation and it tells us on whose side we are. When we're attacked for the gospel, we become partakers of the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ, Philippians 3.10. First Peter 4.13 and 14 says, Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. It's a privilege to partake of Christ's sufferings. It strengthens a church. It wins the lost. It leads to eternal reward, and ultimately it glorifies the Lord. Paul and the early church counted it all joy to suffer for Christ's sake. Paul also says that we're not alone at the end there. All the faithful servants of the Lord have suffered. It happened to Jesus, it happened to the early church, and it happened to Paul. And so we're not alone. Suffering for Christ's sake is another proof of our salvation. So let's not be terrified when it happens to us. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father. Again, Lord, we just ask you to strengthen us, Father, for those difficulties we face in life, Lord, whether it would be persecution or it would be what the enemy sends our way, it would be just life on this earth before your your return. Father, we just ask for the heart of Paul, Father. We ask, Lord, that you would give us his perspective, Lord. Give us uh, to live his Christ, to die his gain. Give us, Lord, his actions. Help us to be women, Father, who serve you. Father, who are grateful for what you have done for us. Father, give us confidence in you. Father, give us your agape love. Lord, help us to be women of prayer. Give us the right attitude and the right perspective as Paul had. Father, give us unity as sisters in your church, Father, as your church. Father, give us boldness to proclaim the gospel and teach us, Father, to rejoice and have your joy, your strength. As we go through this life. And we just praise you. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.